This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is a professor of history at Exeter University, and today we're going to be talking to Jeremy about his new book, Mapping Shakespeare and Exploration of Shakespeare's World Through Maps, published recently by Conway, an imprint of Bloomsbury. Jeremy, congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Many thanks indeed. Tell us about yourself before we talk about the book. I've always been interested in the map dimension. I nearly did geography at university instead of history, and sometimes I wish I had. Um, And I've always tried to retain in particular interest in historical mapping. I published a number of books in the mid-90s, particularly Maps and History and Maps and Politics, and I edited edited the Dorling Kindersley Atlas of World History. And I taught for many years at Exeter a course called Maps and History, in which I looked at the mapping of the past and the problems of mapping in the past. So producing a series of books, and I've done one on mapping of cities, one on mapping of war, one on mapping of naval warfare, one on the mapping of fortifications, producing a series of books in which I've looked at past maps and tried to write sensibly about the topic from the perspective both of a historian and of the perspective of somebody who's actually in his life had to produce an atlas. Um, I think that that was a sort of particularly original and interesting perspective. Now, you've long been interested in cartography, as you've just mentioned, but you've also been interested in Shakespeare. What made you decide to bring these two interests together in this book? Well, I like to sort of, you're right, I, uh, in fact, I think we discussed it on this network, um, England in the Age of Shakespeare. I like to try and think outside the box. Most of the work on the history of cartography and on historical geography as a whole has been done by geographers, and it's excellent, but it very much reflects their perspectives. Nothing wrong with that, but what I wanted to do, as also, of course, in my book on geopolitics, is, and indeed my book on geography in the 18th century, is to look at historical geography from the historian's perspective. So I think that helps to make it different. And the other thing is, quite frankly, producing any book with maps in is expensive. There are permission rights and all the rest of it. So you have to think about how you can produce something which people are going to want to purchase. So that encourages the publisher to cover the costs. So my next book on the history of maps coming out, which is with British Library Books and in America with the University of Chicago Press, 
is on 100 maps of World War II. And again, it's the same perspective. It's a scholarly work, but it is designed to capture the public interest because hopefully that encourages the publisher to cover their costs in reproducing the maps. Well, that, that's fascinating, and maybe we'll get a chance to speak about that book when it appears. But in terms of the practicalities of putting a book like this together, Jeremy, it's around about 200 pages, just short of 200 pages long. There must be more or less a map per page. There must be at least 150 maps in here. I'm not sure. I didn't count them all. But how do you go about sourcing, finding, working out which maps are the most relevant for the kind of story you want to present? You're right. To do an atlas, and indeed to do any illustrated work, is particularly difficult. To do an atlas is, I suppose, uniquely difficult because the, it is not easy to substitute the images. So let us say you were doing an illustrated book on Shakespeare's England and you wanted to show stately homes and you were being charged too much to reproduce pictures from the interior of Hatfield. Well, there are other stately homes, Harvard Hall, for example, which you could look at instead. Um, but obviously, if you're trying to look and depict a specific map which may only survive in a unique copy, then there are practical difficulties. A lot depends upon whether you're dealing with uniques or whether you're dealing with ones that were printed and of which a reasonable number of that atlas survives. And of course, in the 16th century, you have both a lot of uniques still, but also you have the impact of printing in the world of, uh, um, you know, in the world of cartography. So in production terms, you've got issues such as the uh, availability already of an image. The, if there isn't an image available, who is going to produce that image? What is going to be the cost of producing the image? Or what is the cost of the Persian right to the image owner? Then you've got to think about how to size it on the page. I mean, is there a problem that, for example, the map can only be uh, reproduced so that it covers the gutter? You know, that's the uh, the this space where the two pages meet. In other words, too much detail is lost there. Are there problems with sizing? Are there problems with the words on the map being difficult to read uh, in the original, let alone in reproduction? Uh, are there issues about sufficiently interesting or not interesting color contrast? All of these are among the many uh, design issues, and there are many other design issues to consider. So yes, a map, an atlas, a historical atlas particularly, but any illustrated work as a whole requires a whole set of additional skills to those required uh, when one's doing a book. And as I said, I've just been doing this historical atlas of World War Two, and the designer a brilliant chap called Chris Westhorpe, who I worked with before on Metropolis, the book on the mapping of cities, um, you know, plays a significant role and we interact an enormous amount in discussing which images are going to work, what size they've got to be, because that then affects, for example, how much caption you've got to write. Uh, and there's no point writing too much caption, having the map too small, then you can't see what you're trying to discuss in the caption and vice versa. So there's all sorts of issues that pertain. So, again, to stay on the question of practicalities, when you're working on a project like this, do you decide a finite number of pages that the project will represent and work back from that? Or do you design an ideal content in terms of illustrations, uh, the kinds of prose that you'd want to attach to that and work from there? Is it a forwards or a backwards kind of project? 
Um, well, it's very complicated because usually with most historical atlases, they're not going to work until a number of different national publishers are willing to come in and, you know, to jointly cover the costs. So what the usual way of proceeding is to produce what's known as a blad, which is a dummy of a few pages of it, plus a prospectus of the whole of the rest, which in the past, before the uh, days of COVID, was taken to the Frankfurt Book Fair. And there would be then an attempt generally to sign an American, a Chinese, and either a French or more commonly a German uh, co-publisher. And if you could line those up, then the book goes. Um, now, what that means is that you have to produce a, um, a synopsis to what are, in effect, the product as a of the publishers, but then they, of course, want to discuss with you what is practical. So they will usually have a clear idea of how many pages they want, but um, the amount of, and generally the amount of text, but there can easily be variants depending upon, for example, uh, they might set a budget per map or per illustration, and if the first half of the maps are coming in too much, then somebody has to think very dramatically about this. Are we going to change this list? Are we going to substitute some photographs for uh, maps? How are we going to do things? So, I mean, there is both a fixed character, but there also has to be a degree of flexibility along the way. And also, you can determine a map, and the publisher can agree we'll have that map in, and then it, then it can be impossible to get a copy produced. It might well be that there's a unique, and that unique is off the restoration. There could be a whole hundred one reasons. So you have to be prepared to be flexible. So, and you know, I've done many of these. You can write the text and then find the maps aren't the ones that you want, which means that you've got to vary the text, or you produce, you, you get the maps. I mean, you know, it could, there's all sorts of different ways around. Each of them have their advantages and their disadvantages. And I think the fair thing that has to be said is many of these books do not make much money. Many of them can be loss, loss makers, which means that it's very difficult for the publishers to make the commitment. And I think that has got more, not less, as an issue, because one of the interesting things about British society and American society is that the kind of person that is willing to spend, I don't know, £30 a head for, say, two people to go out to a meal thinks it's outrageous if they get asked to pay £25 for a heavily illustrated uh, hardback book. So, you know, there is, there is a lot of problems there that they, uh, um, and I think in the long term, one has to ask how viable the model is, which is a great pity because uh, the British have traditionally produced um, really innovative um, historical atlases and have done very well with them. But it may well be that this is an industry that is going down the tubes. Mm. Well, this is certainly a visually stunning book, Jeremy, that you've put together. But uh, alongside uh, the really wonderful collection of maps here, many of which most of which are in colour. Um, there's also some really detailed narrative, isn't there, about the background to cartography and the various um, technological advances that allowed it to develop as a science through this period. 
Tell us a little bit. Uh, yes. Well, can I just can <laughs> I, I just say I think that's really important because my own view, and I hold this view very strongly for all illustrated works, is that you should always be trying to engage both the intelligence of the reader and their visual interest and to be interacting with them. So a lot of illustrated books, quite frankly, don't work for me because they're just glosses. They're just, you know, they're, as it were, cookery books without any sophisticated discussion of food. Um, and I think what I've tried to always do is explain the context of the of the maps. And as you say, in the 16th century, there are a whole series of technical changes. There are a whole series of contextual changes. So one can see, for example, the issues facing contemporaries as they move to uh, printed maps. You can see the issues facing them as they very much uh, con consider different uh, projections. And I discuss for most classically the Mercator projection. There is the problems of fitting in new information, which you get as a result of voyages of exploration. There are all sorts of questions that, about what was going to work for contemporary map entrepreneurs, because the thing that was in common of the age of Shakespeare and publishing today is that fundamentally in Britain, it was an entrepreneurial world. In other words, what I mean by that is it's not like, for example, a system in which it's the government that publishes everything and the government fixes the costs to itself and determines what's going to appear. Instead of which you have entrepreneurs producing maps just as publishers do today and trying to find out if there was a market out there. And I think that's a very important nature of that society. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And of course, that reflects Shakespeare as well, one of the great entrepreneurs of, of the period, which we might talk about uh, in, in a second or two. Before we do, though, tell us a little bit about the state of cartography or the state of geographical knowledge uh, around the turn of the, the 17th century. Well, cartography in, shall we say, 1600 in the European context, because there's a separate tradition, for example, in China, but cartography in the European context is one in which um, printing has changed the economics of it. So in, instead of a previous situation in which there would always be a unique map, it could be hand copied, but you can never hand copy something to be as a precise fashion. Um, instead of which you get repeated images, which is what you've got uh, with printing, and the kind of standardization of a visual image that comes with it. I think that's quite important as an aspect of printing. There is the idea that maps are there for utilitarian purposes, because people want to know about the world they're in, but they're also there as a consumer product. You can think slightly into the 17th century of Vermeer's painting in which there's a map of the low countries in the background as a kind of wall hanging, a decoration. This is what you should have. 
Um, and, you know, I, I have in the book some of the Saxton maps. Some of those maps were purchased so that people could look at their county. But they're also purchased so you could put it on your wall. You could display your virtue as a knowledgeable local uh, figure who understands and is interested in the county which he lives in, and the same for those people who go in for urban mapping. So that it works in a utilitarian fashion, it works in, as a part of the world of knowledge, it works as an aspect of a sort of consumer society. So we have in this book, we have maps of the world, all the way down to maps of a single village. We have maps from England, maps from across Europe, maps even from China. Um, but we also have maps of the skies, maps of the moon, astronomical maps. What's going on with those texts? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, in fact, if you then look at the Indian mapping tradition, and the best source for that is the Schwarzberg edited volume in the history of cartography, the great uh, American project. If you look at that, you will find that astral mapping is the key element insofar as we know from the surviving sources from India, because he makes the point there may be more maps to find. But astral mapping, human beings' location, um, vis-a-vis the, as it were, the solar system, vis-a-vis -vis the forces that are believed to be affecting them. So this is a world of uh, without being disparaging, this is a world in which the uh, your astral signs, the zodiac, um, are all going to affect you, and therefore you need to understand um, uh, that world. So, uh, and I try and link that, of course, in the book with a whole series of, if you like, cultural, ideological, theological. Um, the sort of world's clashes of uh, forces, um, all of which relate to the locating of human beings and in particular their souls uh, as part of a bigger spatial location. And that, of course, is engaged also in Shakespeare's world. I mean, Shakespeare is very much somebody who is willing and happy uh, to depict the world of warring elements of good and ill uh, playing a major role on the earth with human beings being thus affected. And in a sense, there is that element to cartography um, and including mental cartography, which of course is one of, is really Shakespeare's speciality. Most of the maps he depicts are not physical maps, though he does uh, discuss physical maps, but they are essentially psychological maps. Um, and that is always an important element of cartography. So to give you an idea of a Shakespeare discussing a physical map, as I, as I mentioned in my book, there's the map that is used when Percy and Mortimer and Glendower are supposedly partitioning um, England in the reign of Henry IV. Um, now, what's interesting, I mean, there's no evidence that they did use such a map, but what is interesting is that by the time you are producing a play about that 200 years later, it appears perfectly reasonable to assume that these individuals would have sat there with a map because you have a much more carto-literate society. So for Shakespeare to extrapolate his modern society back uh, into English history seems entirely reasonable. Now, it's fascinating you mentioned there, Jeremy, that, that maps are really about power, spiritual power, political power as well. We've got a number of really interesting 
uh, texts in the volume here, the Ditchley portrait of Elizabeth I, where she is standing on a map of England, the villagers' map of Bassingham, uh, from the petition in 1629, which I mentioned before. Speed, John Speed's map of invasions. What's what's the what's the political purpose of of mapping in this period? Well, the political purpose of mapping serves all sorts of functions. There are both specific concerns about security. So, Burley, uh, Elizabeth's key minister, very much patronised the mapmaker Christopher Saxton for that reason, just as the development of the Ordnance Survey in the 1790s and 1800s owed a lot uh, to uh, the concern of the British government about the prospect of being invaded by the French. So there is a very utilitarian purpose, but also politics is a rhetoric. It's part of a rhetoric about statecraft. It's part of a rhetoric about um, how power is understood. So you correctly refer to the Ditchley portrait in which Elizabeth's grandeur is in part expressed by positioning her on the map. Um, and that is something that I think would have meant a lot in that period, wouldn't have really meant anything at all 150 years earlier. Um, similarly, if you actually go to the Escurial, uh, Philip II's palace, you know, her great adversary, you can see in the library there, which was his study in effect, um, two big uh, globes, a terrestrial globe and a celestial globe. And those are both designed to be utilitarian, but they are also an expression of the majesty of a king who, as it were, whose attention spans the world. So you've got the map as an expression of power. And I quote in uh, my book the um, uh, speech from Antony and Cleopatra in which they are running through a litany of um, – uh, twice, in fact, in that play, a litany of provinces in the um, in the Near East, which are being uh, 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 you know at issue, if you like, uh, in that period. And the idea there is that space, the world, you know, distance, what is depicted in the map, is a source of grandeur. And that's captured, of course, as I show in the book, um, in um, very much in Shakespeare's rival, Christopher Marlowe, in his play Tamburlaine, when, of course, Tamburlaine regrets that there is not time and opportunity to conquer all of the map. Um, and it's very interesting. There has been some detailed work on Marlowe's Tamburlaine, which has suggested that Christopher Marlowe, at his desk, had access to a pretty well up-to-date atlas of the world, um, at the world as known at that point by Europeans, that's what we're talking about, because of what he mentions and what he has, is able to say about them and their relationship to each other. So the notion that in some way um, writers are in some sort of garret, un unaware of the world that they are in, is I think just just not appropriate, no more than the audiences were. In fact, you can turn that on its head. It's possible that in the small, relatively small, crowded world of London, which was the centre of commerce, the centre of publishing, the centre of politics, it's possible that the average, insofar as that phrase means anything, theatre-goer in 1600 would have known more about contemporary politics um, than his counterpart or, or her counterpart, but it mostly be his, his counterpart today. Yeah, I suppose you could say that about languages as well, couldn't you? The use of French in Henry V to convey 
key themes uh, um, in, in, in Henry's marriage, apart from anything else. I, I thought it was lovely the way that the book, cul- well, it does, doesn't culminate, but it culminates logically, I suppose, uh, in putting Shakespeare on the map himself. Uh, we've got the Globe Theatre appearing in a number of early modern maps of London, don't we? How accurate are these maps? Um, some of the maps are pretty accurate. I mean, I do discuss, you know, that in the book. I mean, accuracy is, is a theme. But um, the some of the maps are really coming down to, you know, the pictogram maps um, are giving you, and the Coppergate uh, ones are giving you, Copperplate, sorry, are giving you really quite precise details. And I reproduce that map of Southwark, which is a manuscript map, um, but which, again, you know, individual buildings are located quite clearly. So I would say, yes, accuracy, um, because accuracy is, is um, I mean, you know, I, I comment on the one on Cornwall that the lizard is is shaped not as well as it should be. And I think I comment on the one of the Mediterranean, the Mercator one, that the alignment of the North African coast is not perfect. So I'm not implying that... Um, there would necessarily be a matching of modern standards of accuracy, but accuracy itself always faces problems. In other words, I mean, you know, let's talk about modern accuracy. If I produced you an A to Z map of Belfast where you lived, and you'd say, yes, that's absolutely perfect. They've got all of the uh, road details absolutely right. And I'd have said, yes, but your A to Z map doesn't give you any idea of the underlying topography, in other words, height. It doesn't give you any un- un- understanding of the actual height of the buildings along these roads, whether there are buildings along these roads. In other words, the, you know, what we think of as accuracy in part depends upon what we are choosing to use the map for. And once you meet, reach reach that criteria rather than assuming some universal outside time, then I think it's fair to say that these are accurate maps. And, uh, and you know, there is obviously room for criticism of them. Um, and some of them are more, you know, worrying than others, if you see what I mean. I mean, funnily enough, I, you know, there's a map there of Tunis. And funnily enough, I've actually been to Tunis and I tried to work out on the ground what you could follow of the campaign there that was fighting there with the, uh, the European invaders in 1535 and then again in the early 1570s. And it is not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, I'm not sure how easy I'd have found it producing a map at a distance of Tunis. I mean, the, the maps that you see of London, I mean, one of the problems is the problem of perspective. Are you going to go for a, for a aerial shot? And then what does that do in terms of distortion? So in the case of the Coppergate map, which is, you know, an early large scale printed one from a about 1553 to 1559, um, what you've actually got is pretty good because it is producing rather like small wooden houses, although they're not wooden, obviously, the individual images of the houses. So that gives you some sense of accuracy that you don't get if you've got a map on a different scale. And the copper gate is very, copper plate, sorry, is very, is got, is a very good scale. Uh, you don't get that detail if you've got a, a less good scale because you simply cannot uh, you cannot do that uh, on the other hand if you look at the copper plate one um, it would have caught you it's not exactly a map you could have you know you could have carried around with you well of all of these maps jeremy stunning as many of them are visually which one's your favorite 
Well, I liked them out of Cambridge, not so much because I was an undergraduate there, um, but actually because I rather liked the pigs in the corner <laughs> eating e- eating the acorns, and I thought that was rather nice. I liked the bird's eye view of uh, Vienna during the siege in 1529 because I felt that was good. I've always been attracted by Oriental maps. I've always been attracted by those, so I thought... You know, those uh, those were interesting. I mean, one of the things I found really exciting about this atlas was the ability, as you said, to produce different images at very different scales, which captures what the potential of that period is, but also captures, as it were, the excitement. So you've got the map by Plantius of the East Indies in 1592 and the Matteo Ricci map of the world in 1602 which was commissioned, in fact, by the the uh, Chinese emperor, the Wanli emperor. Now, what's interesting about those are these are maps in which people are struggling to decide what are they going to show? How are you going to do it? Because obviously information is one, and you cannot check it readily. You've got often, as it were, uh, scraps of information which you have to sit together. So the Plantius map interests me quite a lot um, because I think, you know, if he takes New Guinea and he shows the northern coast, which, of course, they knew a bit about, he doesn't show the southern coast. Good for him because they didn't know it. And I've always been of the opinion that the best thing, if you don't know, is don't show. Um, I like that. I mean, he puts on the map um, uh, the woods, the uh, woods of the period, the spices. He has some of the uh, in the sea. He puts um, sort of rather large fish. Um so I, I found that really aesthetically interesting. I found it interesting because it what shows you about the shape of cartography. And I found it interesting because some of what he shows, like the Solomon Islands, I've been to. So I, I was actually interested to, you know, compare and to think what it must have been like to try and produce a map of that period, in that period of things that, you know, by the nature of things were really on the edge of the known European world. Um, I also liked I liked the opportunity to you know scrutinise Shakespeare from all sorts of thing, uh, matters to do with um, with geography. I mean, some of them are amazing. I mean, the Comedy of Errors when Dromio of Syracuse describes Nell the kitchen west wench as no longer from head to foot than from hip to hip. She is spherical like a globe. The assumption is that everybody in the audience will know what one means by comparing somebody uh, to a globe. And that sort of thing that I found really interesting. So that, as it were, language which relates, you know, not necessarily specifically to a map, but to measures, measures to judge, to distance, um, to the way in which the world can be imaged like a globe. There is a lot of it in Shakespeare, and I would like to think that my book is extraordinarily valuable for anybody wanting to read Shakespeare, as well as for anybody who's interested in um, historical cartography, and indeed in the world of the 16th and early 17th century. And it certainly is. Well, Jeremy, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today, talking about your new book, Mapping Shakespeare, an exploration of Shakespeare's world through maps. Before we go, can you tell us a little bit more about this World War II project you mentioned earlier on? 
Yes, that's due out this autumn. I mean, British Library Books have published um, a number of books, or 100 maps on, which are maps of the contemporary period. So all these maps of World War II are contemporary maps of different stages. And what I've tried to do, because I don't believe, I write a lot of books, but I don't believe in doing a book unless I can be original. So instead of doing the usual plonkety-plonkety stuff in which you, you know, you start in 1939, or if you're doing it, looking at Asia, 1937, and you move on through stages, I instead have, uh, have split it up. So there's a section on geopolitical mapping, a section on strategic mapping, a section on operational mapping, a section on tactical mapping, a section on mapping in newspapers, a section more generally on propaganda, propaganda mapping, and a section on retrospective mapping. So that includes things like the 1947 Michelin map of the uh, Normandy beaches. And I found that really fascinating. It gave it a very different flavor to me, and I think it makes it a very original book. And one of the great problems if you are trying to engage with the audience as intelligent people is you do know that a lot of them are jaded against the uh, publishing world that often show, you know, serves them up exactly the same sort of stuff. And I'm afraid there are too many historians, I'm not supposed to mention them, of course, but many of them household names who essentially just serve us up what we already knew and could already see 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, that sounds like an interesting project. I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Jeremy, thanks for your time today. Thanks for writing this book. And thanks for being willing to come on to the show to talk about it. A pleasure, Crawford. And can I just give a plug for my next book, which Please is do. out at the beginning of July? Please do. At the beginning of July, with Little Brown, is my short history of the Mediterranean. And it follows my short history, histories of Italy, Spain and Portugal. And I think it's rather good. And the reason for the link is it includes a section on Shakespeare's Mediterranean with a lot of discussion of, for example, Pericles and um Merchant of Venice, uh, the you know the Tempest, all of which uh, are have settings, let alone of course the antique ones such as Antony and Cleo. And there's lots of stuff about the sea there. So in each section, I've tried to have a link with writers. I mean, obviously in some cases it's easy. I mean, you know, with Homer, for example, some cases not so easy. So for the 20th century, I had a British detective novel in the 1930s set on a ocean liner in the Mediterranean. So, but I, I, I think it would, be, it would interest people who have a sense of spatiality. And people who may be missing their usual summer holiday. And people who be missing their usual summer holiday, yeah. Good. Well, Jeremy, thanks for your time. Um, thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.